The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you now and I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it speaks to us, that we can use it to help folks who struggle. And God, I thank thank you how it speaks into medicine. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me this morning. I know I can't do this unless you do. And God, I pray you'd open all our hearts to the scriptures. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, how does the modern practice of medicine and the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture mix? I've been a doctor now for four decades. I've, I've been involved in biblical counseling since 19, or in counseling since 1986, and biblical counseling since 1998. And for me, it's been the opportunity to to live and work in the space between those two professions. Not everything in medicine is a biblical counseling issue. And of course, not everything in biblical counseling is a medical concern, but at times the two meet. And how they interact can either be a great benefit to the individual or can be great harm. I've had the privilege over the last year to spend Mondays with Bob Smith. Uh, Bob Smith was uh, a uh, one of the original biblical counseling players. He he what much of what we know about biblical counseling today can be attributed to the efforts of of Jay Adams, Bob Smith, and others, um, particularly what goes on up in Lafayette, Indiana. Um, Bob and Leona ran the counseling center up in uh, at Faith uh, Church in Lafayette. Uh, Leona just uh, in the last week went to be with the Lord, and uh, so and I and I met with Doc um, the day after she uh, passed away. Um, he he's doing as well as anybody would expect to to, to have been to have lived with someone for more of your life than 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 you didn't and now to be separated from her. Um, but anyway, I, I, I've been spending many afternoons with him anyway for about a year because of the fellow process that I've been going through for the ACBC. And um, now that I'm done with that, I, I still meet with him. And as I was writing this lecture, I decided to ask Doc what he thought about the subject, the integration of, of biblical counseling and, and the sufficiency of scripture. And he had a few things to say that I think will be helpful. The um, first is that the sufficiency of Scripture is not anti-medicine or anti-doctor. It's pro-Bible. Often the uh, objections that biblical counselors have against secular counseling theory and psychiatric diagnoses and treatment are taken to mean that biblical counselors are anti-medical in the same way that the Christian scientists are anti-medical. Being anti-medical or anti-medicine or doctor is not a biblical counseling distinctive. Second, oops, second was, the Bible tells the doctor all he needs to know in order to be a godly physician. Now, why should that surprise us? The Bible tells us all we need to know in order to be godly people, period. Why is this important? Because often doctors deal with situations and subjects in which decisions which must be made that are of a moral nature. It matters, right or wrong. Abortion is one that I can think of. A, uh, a physician-assisted suicide murder is another, to name a couple. 
Third thing Doc said was while the scripture is sufficient in telling us how to deal with fears, it doesn't tell us the physiology of the problem. To many outside the biblical counseling movement, we are seen as charter members of the Flat Earth Society all wearing tin hats. In their estimation, we are not capable of understanding medical science, nor do we wish to do so. Nothing could be further from the truth. While a healthy distrust of settled science is not a biblical counseling distinctive, we are right to question science so-called that labels childhood tantrums as a disease, the disease dysfunctional mood dysregulation disorder. I like that. DMDD. My dad had an acronym for it, which was a little different. It was B-R-A-T. <laughs> and he had a very concrete way of dealing with it. <laughs> Worked rather well for my brothers and I. I assume it must be genetic because I have children, grandchildren who suffer with it. time. <laughs> The um, next thing, on the other hand, on the other hand, we should be glad at the amazing advances announced in the past 18 months about the, our scientific understanding of the origin and cause of schizophrenia. We now understand what the genetics are that interrupt and uh, cause the, the trouble that occurs in the, auto, in, the, in the immune system at the C4 level that results in the damage that occurs in the brain. And, and when you can understand that, eventually you can test for it. And then eventually there'll be treatment. And I can tell you that I, I believe that, uh, that within, within my lifetime, I would say maybe 10 years, we'll, there's going to be a day when schizophrenia is no longer a psychiatric disease, because it really isn't a psychiatric problem. It, it is a medical issue. And people will come to an emergency room, have their first episode of psychosis, they'll get a blood test, somebody will say, you have this, and they'll be able to treat it and stop it. That is an amazing advance, for which we in biblical counseling should be grateful, and I am. Fourth thing, the role of a physician has godly qualities, and that and, and that physician may use the principle of scripture and the, the principles of scripture in the conduct of the doctor-patient relationship. That shouldn't surprise us either. They call us physicians, and when they do, they, they spell it with a small P. They, they call him the great physician in capital letters. Much of, much of what we do as doctors and are reflects dimly what Jesus did in the sense that we battle disease and bring comfort to those who struggle. The last thing that Doc had to say was, a biblical response to symptoms and suffering will always be superior to a non-biblical response. Well, that, that's an important point. If we respond biblically to the problems that we face in life, no matter what they are, we'll always be better off than if we respond in an ungodly and unbiblical way. So, action which is informed by Scripture will always be better than one that isn't. As we seek to help people who struggle with sadness and worry and OCD and pneumonia and cancer or the common cold, the Bible gives us great principles with which we can best help them. All right. Now, as I was preparing to write for this workshop, I puzzled for a long time about where in the Bible I should go in order to talk about this. And I have been reading through my Bible for the last, let me see, now it would be 48 years, every year. I, uh, when I, w I, I was 19 years old and I was an unsaved 
um, hypocrite, gold-plated hypocrite, going to a Baptist church, had been for a good long time. My parents were believers, and... Um, and I, I was trying to get into medical school, and you know, I, I, so I started making deals with God. God, I'll be a better person if you help my grade point average. <laughs> and uh, so I, I would go to church three times a week. I would listen to the pastor, and and, and uh, you know, I took up teaching Sunday school. You know, much. Uh, I, I really feel sorry for those fourth grade boys. Looking back on it, I sang in the choir. I and and, and but the one thing that did make a difference was that the pastor, godly man, fine fine preacher, said that if you really were a, a really rootin' tootin' believer, you would read through your Bible every year, three chapters a day and four on Sunday. I commend that to all your attention. Um, I, I, I tell every counselee I counsel that. And the reason why is because if you read through the Bible every year, guess what? After about 20 years, you know something. Christianity, I think, at times is the only pursuit in which we think that we don't have to learn anything in order to get better at it. So anyway, I started reading through it. And eventually I got to the Gospel of John. And, and, and in chapters 14 through 18, I saw Christ. And I, and, and I, and I, accept, and I became a believer at that point in my life. But anyway, I was so I'm, I'm reading on my annual trip through looking for whatever in the world I'm going to, to use to finish this assignment. This was an assigned topic a, a year or two ago. And I came to Mark chapter 5, and there it was there. You know, I was like, yes, this is the chapter that I need to talk to or talk about. And it's a familiar one. In, um, there we are. All right. Mark chapter 5. Starting at verse 1, then they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. It's a familiar story. When I was a kid, and it was the in the King James Version, it was the maniac of Gadara. I think now it's the demoniac of the Gerasenes. It's the, um, he, he was the neighborhood the neighborhood fellow who ruined everybody's property values. Imagine that. You've, you've just bought the new house, you move in, and you find out that there's a guy who's going to be up all night screaming, and, and nobody can control him. He cuts himself with stones. He terrorizes the neighborhood. This has been going on forever. Jesus gets out of the boat. The man runs up to him, and you have that interesting conversation between Christ and the demons. The demons saying, you know, Jesus, you know, what business do we have with each other, Jesus? Son of the Most High, God, I implore you, do not torment me, because Jesus had been telling the demon to come out of the man, you unclean, clean spirit. And so the demon and Christ negotiate um, their exit, and it was into the herd of swine that was nearby that the Jews weren't supposed to have anyway, and the swine that immediately run off a cliff. And uh, this word gets back to the town. You know, there's a big doings out, out on, on the edge, and they go out and, and, and see the swine off the edge of the cliff, and they see the fellow clothed in his right mind. And they pick up Jesus, put him on their shoulders, and carry him into town, shouting hallelujah all the way there, didn't they? No, that wasn't what happened, was it? No, they, they ask him to leave, promptly ask him, ask him to leave town. Um, so... As a physician, I can tell you that that story is the stuff of great articles that can be found almost every day in the National Enquirer. Yes, yeah, they would describe this. And, and what would they have said about the scene? They would have said that, that the man was possessed by a demon and Jesus had, had done an exorcism. And they would have been right. 
what was it in Men in Black? Not that I'm, I'm saying that you should watch the movie. Yes, it's Tommy Lee Jones telling Will Smith all the real news is in the National Enquirer. But had this man been carried off to a psych ward, what would have happened to him? He would have been declared psychotic or schizophrenic, and they would have put him in a straitjacket and tried to restrain him chemically, and they would have helped him not one bit. In that case, he looked like he that he uh, he looked a lot like he had some sort of medical disorder. The, the only thing, though, that could save this man that day was a providentially arranged encounter with Jesus. And in that case, Jesus, the Word of God, who became flesh and dwelt among us, was vastly superior and absolutely sufficient for the needs of the man. Needs that medicine would likely have misdiagnosed and would never have been able to fix then or now. Either one. But the chapter just keeps on getting better. Jesus gets back in the boat, crosses over the ocean um, or the sea, um, and then he gets to the other side and he runs into a situation in 21 through 24 that really needed an ICU, a team of doctors, and an ambulance. The official of the synagogue, Jairus, came and fell at his feet and begged him to come because his little girl was near the point of death. You know, obviously at this point, the ability of the physicians, the diagnostic tools that they had available to them uh, weren't very, very useful. Um, and, it, and, and it was failing. And so Jesus went off with him through a big crowd. And for a short time, for nine verses, there's going to be another scene play out. As Jesus is moving through the crowd, there's a lady there. And that lady, Mark says, had, had for years had, had a, a problem with a gynecologic bleed. Um, as Jesus passed by, she touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. Just like that. And Jesus knew it, of course. She had, as Mark says, suffered much at the hands of many physicians. <laughs> had spent all that she had to be cured and was not only not made better, but became worse. Yes, obviously Mark saw no need to be to, for professional courtesy as he described this. <laughs> no, you guys didn't get that, did you? <laughs> I, I don't do jokes much because I don't do well at them. But anyway, and, and in the moment, Jesus, Jesus healed her. Now, in that case, Jesus was the very incarnate living word of God. And he was sufficient for the woman's need and vastly superior to everything else that medicine had to offer or health care had to offer at that time. So that's two. But the story's not over yet. While Jesus is dusting on his hands for, from his second major, major medical miracle of the day, word comes to Jairus that his daughter is dead and he doesn't need to bother Jesus anymore. Jesus hears that, grabs Jairus, and... Peter, James, and John, and they march off to Jairus' house. As, as they arrive, the, he can hear the wailing, the utilating, uh, you know, with the, the thing they do with their tongues uh, for, as, as the morning was, was, was starting. And Jesus walks in and says, what's the commotion here? The child is not dead, she sleeps. And the crowd left off wailing at that point and started laughing at him. So Jesus goes in, rushes them, rushes them off, goes in, takes the little girl by the hand and raises her and restores her to life. Now, there are lots of ways to interpret this. I suspect the girl was dead in the same way that Lazarus was dead and Jesus said Lazarus was asleep. 
So Jesus took the girl and woke her. Again, when medicine had tried and failed, Jesus was vastly superior and entirely sufficient for the problem. And Jesus always will be. Now, I'm not about here to preach about faith healing, but I can tell you that no matter what the problem is medically, now or in the future, if Jesus is there and he so chooses, he will be entirely sufficient for the problem and he will be superior to whatever we can do in medicine, period. Now, please don't take me to mean that physicians are not a gift from God because at times they are. And and don't take a word that I have said to mean that taking medicine is not good and necessary because at times it absolutely is. There are all kinds of people walking around today who would have died of strokes from hypertension 10 years ago. And that just because of taking a couple of pills a day to lower your blood pressure. The principle that I want you to come away from from this chapter is that when God chooses to interact with mankind in the arena of medicine, God will always have a superior solution. You know, that that really isn't a very controversial thing to say. And that solution will be sufficient for the need. Now, ah, I just blew by all those notes, but they're in your notes anyway. All right, okay. There we are, C. Now, someone in the crowd must be thinking the question, well, if God is sufficient and superior to medicine, what do we need doctors and pills for? Well, I need the work. (laughs) And the answer is just a couple chapters back in in Mark. Um, It's in Mark chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Um, From Jesus' lips to our ears. Um, Jesus has uh, been doing the miracles, raising, healing people, raising people, and... um, those miracles were identifying him. They were, they were the identifying marks of the Messiah. That's what he was doing. He was authenticating his ministry to those who were there. Of course, the Pharisees were there, and they, they weren't, it made a difference what he did. They weren't, they weren't buying into the authenticity. And so in the evening, he goes, I think, to Matthew's house, and he, he's going to eat. And, and, and the people who came there were identified by the Pharisees as, 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 as tax collectors and sinners. Every, probably every last one of Matthew's tax collecting buddies showed up for this dinner. And, um, and so they were criticizing Jesus roundly for, for doing this. And his response is in verse 17. And it says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, you know, whenever you use an example, it really means it's real. If Jesus said that sick people need a doctor, sick people need a doctor. So, there we are. We have Christ saying that six people needing need a physician. At that moment in time and looking down the road of the future, uh, as only he could, Jesus said that people needed doctors then and they still do. Jesus didn't always choose to heal sick people, though, um, because it didn't fit his purpose. 
uh, see John 11. You know, it's, that's a great chapter. It's a great chapter to talk to people about suffering and how God cares about them. The four-point sermon is that Jesus knew all about it. Uh, Jesus had a plan for it. Jesus cared because he wept, even though within minutes he would raise Lazarus from the dead, and then Jesus acted. But, you know, the important point is that Jesus didn't heal Lazarus. He let him die. And the reason why he let him die... I'm not contagious, that's just allergies. I've taken allerg- every allergy pill known to mankind, and uh, they, they all have adverse effects uh, for me, so I don't take any of them. I just let my nose run, unfortunately. It's a bad deal. I would take Sudafed, but my wife tells me it turns me into a jerk. If I, if I, if I take Benadryl, after a couple days, I want to hurt people. I, you know, just, hmm, you know, just, just do. Anyway, so... <laughs> Where was I? Yes, yes. So Jesus let Lazarus die. When Paul had whatever his problem was, and I won't even speculate because far too many people already have, and we don't know any more about it since they have. But three times, what did, what, what did Paul say? He would pray, and he would ask God to heal him, and, Paul, and God would say, no, and, um, and would say, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Three times. And Paul would later say that the great benefit of being sick was that it kept him from being proud. So God didn't heal Paul. Um, didn't, heal, uh, didn't heal Paul either. The bottom line is, is that when God chooses to act, his solution to our medical needs will be sufficient and superior to anything medicine can offer. But when God chooses not to act, we will need physicians. So Jesus sets the stage for us. Medicine and Christianity should always be close together. When they are, people who are ill will find great comfort and compassion. When they are separated, we find the outrageous stories of murderous abortionists and their Planned Parenthood abortuaries. Separate medicine from Christianity and it can become a very dark place to be. All right. Now I need to ask you all to to make a great leap of logic. You'll notice that I haven't been talking about the sufficiency of scripture uh, and the integration of medicine at all so far, have I? I, I've been talking to you about how sufficient God and, and, and our Savior Christ is in the matter. So, I, I, we need to get to that. We need, and the leap is this. If you look in John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 1, what do we find that it says about... What do we find that it says about the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So we see here Jesus entirely identified with his word, isn't he? Yes, you get down to verse 14, what does it say? It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John continues that word play. You get to chapter 14 and verses 5 through 7. And it says, Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes 
unto the Father, but by me. And then it comes the full circle in John 17, where I saw Christ as my Savior. And it says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. None of that was none of that literary device happened by accident. As far as I'm concerned, John is the most is, is the best piece of literature ever written and should be. Why? Well, because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the logical leap is that if God, Jesus, is sufficient and superior in matters of medicine when he chooses to be, then this book, his word, will, whenever it chooses to speak about whatever situation we are in, be superior as well. To the extent that God chooses to speak about the subject, a subject in this book, whatever he says will be superior and sufficient. When it speaks about issues in medicine, it will be sufficient and superior. So, I always smile when people try to tell me that the Bible isn't a, isn't a medical textbook, as if I wouldn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I've read a few. I can remember coming out of the bookstore in my first semester sophomore year holding my, my textbooks like this. You know, and they were all this thick. They were 2,000 pages long, and somehow they expected that we would read every last page. So, yes, I understand what a medical textbook is, but quite on the other hand, you know, God knows all there is that is needed to be known about medicine, period. And whatever he says about it will be just as valid as it was in the first century as it is today. So, how should then medicine and biblical counseling interact in the 21st century? First thing we need to do is to get our definition straight. It'll be useful in the next hour if we do this. Let's start with sufficiency. Okay, yes, sufficiency. First Peter 1, classic, and classic set of verses, starting in verse th- about verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us great his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption of this world by lust. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Jesus. The idea that the scriptures contain all the information that we'll ever need in order to live a godly life is obvious. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. And the only place we can come to know the things that Christ has told us is in this book. We are promised that. We, We are promised that because of our salvation. We have become partakers of his divine nature. We have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts, and because of that, we can escape the corruption that's in the world. So, the question that arises, though, is does the Bible give me all I need, give me all that I need to know in order to be able to say something meaningful, even helpful, when a counselee with OCD sets across for me on Monday evening? That's the major criticism that comes from many in 
the Christian psychology and Christian integrated counseling. And I, and I, don't misunderstand me. I recognize those as brothers, brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, who you know want to view this in a in a different way, a wrong a way which I consider to be incorrect, but different nonetheless. They they believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, but they don't believe that it's enough to help the person with OC OCD. Now, what, what is sufficiency elsewhere? Um, according to the Westminster Confession, it's the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. All that we need to know about life is here. And all, the, all that we need to know about living it in a Christian way. It's my understanding that the... In history, sufficiency became an issue to the reformers because the Pope would speak ex cathedra, from the cathedral, to to clarify scripture or add to it uh, things which were um, significant in in their nature, uh, resulting in Christian doctrines like purgatory. Whenever I tell somebody that they need to quit smoking, I always smile and say, you need to get a little sign and put a string and put it around your neck and on your, and it says, step back. <laughs> you know, just step back for at least two weeks. Why? Because you're headed into purgatory. You know, it's going to be a difficult time. Of course, we don't believe that doctrine because it's not found anywhere in Scripture, and nor do we worship Mary. Although if you say that around Catholics, they really get upset with us because we, because we say it. But when you look at what they do, it is nothing more and nothing less than simply doing that. And then there were selling indulgences, you know, buying somebody out of purgatory earlier or, or, or whatever or out of hell. The reformers made it plain that the only authority that existed to determine how we would live and conduct our lives was the word of God. And that we had no intercessor between us and God the Father besides Jesus Christ. God's word was sufficient for all matters of faith and practice, just as Peter said. Now, it didn't become much of an issue in medicine um, for those who were sad or worried until the middle of the last century. You know, I'm old enough that I'm saying that now. It's, just, it's a remarkable thing. 1950 isn't that far long ago, is it? No. Well, it is, I guess, for some of you who weren't born yet. Um, two things started in 1950. People started going to church less to the point that the fastest growing choice on the religious preference checkboxes now is none. You know, and, and instead, people started talking. Instead of going and talking to their pastors or their loved ones or their neighbors or their friends, they started going and talking to their doctors and their psychiatrists and their psychologists when they started struggling with worry or depression. As more and more inconvenient behaviors were labeled as disease in the, di- in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Mental Disorders, so henceforth known as the DSM, the idea grew that if a problem such as worry was labeled as generalized anxiety disorder, or if sadness were labeled as depression, normal sadness due to loss were, named, were labeled as depression, that the Bible would not have adequate, sufficient information to help. All right. Now, a quote from John Frame here I think is good. I'm going to read it. Christians sometimes say that Scripture is sufficient for religion or preaching or theology, but not for things as auto repairs, plumbing, and dentistry. You can put medicine in after that, too. That is to miss an important point. Certainly, Scripture contains more specific information relevant to theology than dentistry, but sufficiency in the present context is not sufficiency of specific information. 
but sufficiency of divine words. Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all of life. It has the words the plumber needs, all the divine words the theologian needs, and all the divine words the doctor needs. So it is just as sufficient for plumbing and medicine as it is for theology, and in that sense it's sufficient for science and ethics as well. The Bible may not be able to tell me how to build an MRI machine, which is a marvelous thing, but will tell us everything we need to know in order to use it ethically. And that is the point. It may not tell me every detail how to practice medicine, but will tell me how to practice it in a way that glorifies and honors God and helps patients. As Doc Smith said, boom, okay, Yeah, as Doc Smith said, the Bible tells a doctor all he needs to know in order to be a godly physician. All right. At the same time, uh, it does tell me a lot about worry and sadness that people desperately need to know today. The question is, is how do I use what I know in the Bible and what I learned in medical school and beyond to help people, particularly people with problems that appear to fall into the realm of counseling? Now, what's the word integration mean? It's the act of combining two into a whole and often reflects the idea that the two entities being integrated are equal. And I think this is particularly true for integrative Christian counseling. They view the scriptures and medicine as somewhat equal. The point to remember at this is that when it comes to integrating medicine in particular, in particular with psychiatric or psychological aspects of medicine with the Bible, We're not bringing together two equally valuable things. Medicine changes. It changes almost every day. It certainly, by the time you print a medicine textbook and the ink is dry on the page, it is nearly out of date. I don't even buy them anymore, frankly. I I subscribe to a thing called UpToDate, and it summarizes the, the current state of the literature in the last six months. For every subject in medicine I need to know anything about, and I go read there. Why? Because, well, I'm getting the last six months of everything, not something that outdated before it got printed. The Bible doesn't do that. It is forever settled. It is absolutely true. It will not change. And, and even, even though my opinions in medicine change and, and the way people treat people change, the Bible stays the same. So what we're looking for is not so much the integration of medicine and the Bible as it is to find out where medicine fits in with Scripture. Nothing on earth will ever be equal to the inspired and inerrant, sufficient word of God. Last term we need to define is medicine. The uh, practice of medicine involves the diagnosis, treatment, and correction of human conditions and physical and mental by uh, conditions, physical or mental, by any means, method, devices, or instrument. So, what part of this would we want to fit into, uh, into our biblical counseling? How does it mesh? with the sufficiency of Scripture? And how should medicine and biblical counseling complement one another? All right. Well, first, Christian physicians can offer great comfort to patients who are suffering. We would want to keep that, wouldn't we? Yes, we would. Benjamin Rush, signatory of the Declaration of Independence, considered to be the father of American psychiatry. who also taught other physicians to be physicians. Um, 
The reason why that he became the father of American psychiatry is kind of an odd thing. Uh, He was a great believer in the uh, Hippocratic um, humoral theory of medicine. You know, the blood phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, and all disease was caused by an imbalance of the humors. Almost reminds you of the imbalance. What is it, chemical imbalance or something like that? Anyway, um, yeah, equally, an equally tenable theory. Um, but they believed that if you bled people, that you would uh, put the humors back in balance and they would uh, recover from their ailments. Unfortunately, uh, Benjamin Rush was a, a strong advocate for that, and, and eventually people figured out that if you saw Dr. Rush too often, you bled to death, literally. <laughs> and, uh, and so he had lots of time on his hands. <laughs> and what he started to do, it really is a quirk in history, and so what he started to do is he would write down descriptions of people who were considered insane and, and spent a lot of time cataloging that, and from that came to be known as the father of American psychiatry. But what he really should be better known for was what he taught young men who wished to be doctors. And the one thing that he taught them was that they needed to know the gospel. They really did. And the reason why he thought they needed to know the gospel was because they were likely to be around when people were passing out of this life and into the next. And they would have the opportunity to make sure that the individual who was making that trip had heard what the gospel was. So we want to keep that kind of aspect of medicine. We certainly would. All right. Medicine can also offer guidance, particularly when disease is defined by pathology. I have three axioms in dealing with the... uh, the, the, that blizzard of, of acronym labels that people get, you know, from psychiatry and psychology, uh, you know, it's ADHD, o, OCD, BPD, et cetera, so on and so forth. And, and what I, what I and, and the three things that I hold to, one is that I will never call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. That's a, that's a good sentence. It, you, you know, you might want to write it down. Maybe you don't, but you might. I won't call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. Sin can be repented of. You know, if, if, if I call someone a drunk, uh, they could repent. If I call them an alcoholic, they're going to get locked into the health care delivery system, you know, and spend lots of times in rehab and maybe not benefit all that much from it. So I never call anything a, a disease that the Bible calls sin. I also, I, the second sentence is I never call anything sin unless the Bible clearly does. I, I'm not, I, will, I will not enforce my social preferences on others with the weight of Scripture. You know, if, 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 if the Bible doesn't say it in those Ten Commandments or clearly elsewhere, then I, I'm not going to try to force that on other people. And then the last thing is that I look for pathology. You know, if, if somebody wants to say that you have a disease, I want them to tell me what the pathology is. Now, that's not always possible because, like with migraine headaches, you, we can't figure out what the pathology is yet because they go on in a living human brain, and it's really hard to get in there and figure out what's going on. But for the most part, when we as physicians understand pathology, we do a great job. We really do. And when we don't understand pathology very well, we do very poorly. And, and, and the outcomes can be treacherous. You know, probably the the, the best example of that right now is the current fact that 60,000 people will die this year from an opioid overdose. And those opiate and and that addiction will have started probably in a doctor's office with a prescription. 
You know, I, I, I've spent my whole career being the one most parsimonious writer of prescriptions for narcotics in, in the state of Indiana. And through the 90s, I was criticized bitterly for it at times, but I have been vindicated by the Center for Disease Control in the last year where they said, my goodness, if you don't quit writing these scripts, people will keep dying. If you just write less. So anyway, um, uh, when we have pathology, we do well. Now, how can, that, how can that help us in biblical counseling? Well, it can keep us out of the pitfalls of strep throats and pica. Uh, you know, I, 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 I would say that no one is going to argue that medicine doesn't have a good answer for the strep throat. Anybody here want to say? No, nobody does. You know, five bucks worth of penicillin in 24 to 48 hours, you're lots better. Actually, I was listening to a lecture uh, this week, and it said, well, it's usually a self-limiting disease. You'd probably get better in three to five days anyway. But most of the time, you're going to end up getting, getting penicillin. And nobody's going to dispute that, that, that's, that, that we should treat it that way. If Jesus had wished to do so, he could have healed all strep throats in a sufficient and superior way. But he didn't choose to do so. All right. So when faced with clearly medical problems, with clear pathology and clear pathologic definitions, you need to send them to the doctor. That's right. That means you need to have a good relationship with a physician um, as, you, as you counsel, if you're a biblical counselor. Um, and I encourage you to develop one. That relationship will help you avoid the uh, pitfalls of pica. Anybody in here know what pica is? Uh, uh, eating dirt. Yes, eating dirt, wallboard. Yes. Well, children are eating magazine pictures of food. Oh, well, that might fit. Yes, it's just eating things that aren't food. You know, eating and and it's usually dirt. It can sometimes be wallboard. Pregnant women eat whole bags of carrots, and whole gallons of chocolate ice cream. Um, some of you crunch ice or have in the past, eat whole bags of ice to, to the point that it breaks your teeth, makes your dentist happy as he puts those $1,800 crowns on your teeth. And I could see, I could see the parents bringing the, coming in with great concern, bringing their little child who's eating dirt, whom they have instructed biblically to stop, and, um, and, and who and are now in my office as a biblical counselor asking me to, to help them with biblical principles to get this quick kid to quit eating dirt. And, and you know, I could probably spend, a, maybe I could spend a lot of time doing that. Or, or I could send them down to the doctor and ask him to do a CBC on them, and you'd find out that they had iron deficiency anemia. And when you correct the anemia, they quit eating dirt. So sometimes when we see bizarre behavior, there are medical uh, causes underlying it, and a good physician will help keep you from counseling, spending all that time counseling those parents about how to raise that kid right and get him to quit eating dirt when all he really needed was a daily dose of iron. The same thing can be said for diseases like hyper and hypothyroidism as well. Now, second kind of interaction that we see between medicine and biblical counseling is what I see when I counsel individuals with OCD. And I swear I have become the Indiana OCD magnet in biblical counseling. And I, I, did, I, I, I have counseled a good number, and they can continue to come. Um, OCD is the kind of problem that offers both a medical aspect and a superior biblical response for Christians who struggle. OCD is a problem in which individuals have obsessive, obsessive thoughts that lead to compulsive actions. 
they can believe that the world is contaminated with deadly germs. They touch things and touch other people, and then they're worried that other people will die. They feel compelled to wash their hands 100 times a day in order to prevent it. Uh, there are as many variations of this theme as there are things to obsess about. Uh, right now, the, the one I'm dealing with is someone who uh, uh, thinks that they haven't quite got it right about salvation, and so, you know, they've probably been saved ten times. Uh, must be free Methodist. Just kidding, just kidding. My grandfather was a free Methodist minister, and I grew up in Armeni Armenian circles. Um, so, for me, it's the fear of leaving the garage door open. Um, yeah. That's right. Yes, I, 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 it, it was. It's founded. Doctors actually are some usually checkers. Uh, you want us to be a little obsessive, yeah. <laughs> don't you? Yes. Particularly, yes, about your lab work. You know, and yeah, it's, you do wish me to be a little obsessive. Uh, but one day we left the garage door open for a whole weekend. Came back from out of state, and it was up. And you know, and since that time, boy, Z, I, uh, I, I have to see that garage door go all the way down. And if I didn't see it go all the way down, guess what I will do? I'll drive around the block and come back and look again. Uh, I only have to do it once. The, the, which is much better than for some folks. So you wouldn't say I have the disorder. I sort of have an obsessive compulsive personality. Uh, yes. Um, MRI scans in people who have the full-blown problem light up. Portions of their brain light up to the extent not seen in individuals who are not affected by OCD. These MRI scans revert to normal during counseling as individuals... Um, counsel and change the way they think and act. Their, their MRI scans will revert back. Uh, I, a book I can commend to your attention is Brain Lock by Jeffrey Schwartz. May the Schwartz be with you. Uh, now I know who saw the movie. Yes, yeah, that's right. The, but you'll not forget the author at this point. It's not a Christian book. It's strictly secular. Always not irreligious. He's not anti-religious at all. In fact, he says if you have a good religion and it helps you with this, you should ride it. You know, stay, stay on the horse. Um, quotes and quotes scripture at at different times. Although I think it is more likely that he is a Buddhist than he is. Uh, a believing Christian, but he has pictures. You can go see the pictures of the MRI scans. So we have an emotional struggle that is affected by what we believe to be a physical defect in the brain. And that physical defect is at a place in your brain which enables you to be able to quit thinking about something. You know, most of us can stop thinking about a subject. Some of us have great struggle in doing so, and some people may not be able to do it very, very easily. Those are the folks who eventually uh, end up stuck in OCD. And at the same time, the main element of the struggle is something that the Bible speaks very directly about, and that is fear. And to the observer, it, it appears to be a habit. In a situation like this, we could go either direction. We could say that this is entirely a medical problem, although I would tell you that for the most part, most medical care for this does not work very well, although Schwartz does better. I, I have said, and, I, and I, I mean it, if I were an unsaved person and I had OCD, I'd, I would find out where he lived and go park on his front doorstep and, and, and be there to see him. Why? Because he does better with these people than, than the general run of medical health care. Most, most of the folks who end up on three or four drugs don't do all that well. I believe that if we're going to understand OCD accurately, 
and deal with it well, the answer is going to be in the middle. It's not going to be all a medical problem or all a biblical situation. Um, now, Schwartz had a four-point way of dealing with it. I, 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 at, I, at the same time, though, I believe that the sufficient scripture gives us a superior answer for the believer over what Schwartz does. This doesn't change the medical nature of the problem. It doesn't all either devalue the medical contribution that Schwartz has made. I just think we can do better. Um, Schwartz would say that you, you need to do four things. You need to relabel the thought that they have as irrational. You need to reattribute it to their broken brain. He would say, it's not me, it's my OCD. I just can't quite get there with him. Then, uh, then you need to refocus your behavior on something besides washing your hands. Instead of, you need to refocus on something more, more um uh, either enjoyable or, or valuable, and then you need to revalue uh, your experience in obsessive compulsive disorder. And the direction he goes with revaluing it is that it, it is an amazing waste of time. It is. You know, if you spend all your time washing your hands and, and worrying about um, um, and, and, worry, and, and worrying about things that never happen. Um, that you know is that it's an incredible waste of time. Now, what can the Bible offer that's superior to that? Superior, insufficient. Well, first, the truth. I, I like to point individuals who are struggling uh, to Philippians four, and it's my uh, favorite chapter on worry. It starts in verse, really gets down to it in verse four, and uh, and wraps up about verse nine and, and nine and ten. It says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I say, "Rejoice." Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. Um, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then you get the peace of God that passes all understanding. Then it tells you whatsoever things are true. Yeah, and, and lovely and right and of good reputation that, that we're supposed to think on those things. But I like, I usually park it about true. Think on things that are true. And then finally, the things that you've learned and seen and heard from me, those things you should be doing in in verse 9. So it's, I, uh, this is a choice for the believer. And, and the choice is, am I going to believe my line caught eight nucleus? Or am I going to decide what's true based on scripture? I encourage believers uh, to develop a circle of friends. Um, Schwartz talks about having uh, rational observers, you know, people, and eventually you have to become your own rational observer. Uh, I, you know, I, I put people in circles of folks who know the Lord and, and want to help. Um, then uh, that, that includes um, spouses, loved ones, friends, and pastors, counselors, and doctors who can stand alongside and remind them that their obsession is not true. Um, and they must learn, yes, they must learn to compare their obsession to the truth of Scripture. You know, that, that, that is where the battlefield is, 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 is first and foremost getting them to compare whatever their obsession is to the truth of Scripture. Second, um, I, I think there's too much that is volitional about OCD to simply dismiss obsessive thoughts. <laughs> Say that 12 times quickly. Um, uh, with it's me, it's not my OCD. I, I, I think we get to make a great deal 
a great choice. I see this in terms of Romans 5.12, where Paul tells us, Wherefore is by one man sin in the world, and death by sin, so death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Truthfully, we're all sitting here with broken brains today to some degree or another. We are not as smart, nor are we as pretty or as strong uh, or as virtuous as we would have been had Adam and Eve not chosen to make that that fateful choice. And from that point forward, we have lived in a state where we are born and almost immediately start dying a little bit at a time. I, I can remember looking at the mirror when I was 20 years old and I did not see wrinkles. I, now I'm really glad that when I need to get a picture taken for, you know, that goes into a, into a book that my wife really does Photoshop really well, you know. <laughs> I, I turn my head this way, yes, anyway. Um, so our bodies are broken in ways that we will not entirely understand until we stand before Jesus. As John said in 1 John 3, 1, when he said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when that when we when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is i've always said it's going to be great someday to be 34 years old and have a few scars you know that's uh, you know 34 and a few scars that's, that's that's how jesus that's how old jesus was beats me in 67 um <laughs> All right. I tell counselees that the difficulty they have with abandoning obsessive thought is bound it up in the difference in their brain. And I have them say it's my Romans 5.12 broken brain that keeps me thinking it. At the same time, I point out to them that we as believers, they have an enormous uh, advantage over the unsafe struggler. And what is that advantage? We get to choose. It's a Romans 6. Romans 6 issue. Uh, you know, as, as, as Paul said in Romans 6, we are dead to sin and alive to God. And, and then in 16, he says, Know ye not to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? His servants you are, whether it's sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Um, so I tell the OCD-obsessed individual that the Scripture says that you, you have a choice in this. And that by God's enabling grace, and that is, that, that is the, uh, you know, the most important part of it, uh, the, the advantage that we have as believers is the fact that uh, we, we are saved by grace and then we live by grace. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us uh, that, uh, that raised Jesus from the dead, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, with which he intends to change us. And it is with that that we confront problems like intrusive thinking. That's uh, what Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Yes, we are supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So we have the privilege and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we get to make a choice. That, in my estimation, is entirely superior to what I would, and I, I would much rather have to make difficult choices by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul said in Ephesians 1, than to make them on my own. And so I'll tell the guy, or the, the lady with OCD, yes, you can make the choice, and God will enable you to make the one that doesn't leave you a slave to your obsessions and compulsions. The third thing is that the obsessive, is, the third is, is, that the, uh, is that the obsessive is just made must result, the choice that the obsessive is just made must result in different behavior. And I take them to Galatians 5, where there are those two big lists between the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. And then to Galatians 6, 7, and 6, 7 through 9, where it says, what a man sows, he reaps. And as one preacher said, 
uh, later than he reaps and more than he reaps. Counseling needs to develop a new list of behaviors to go in where the old, useless, fruitless, fearful behaviors used to be. And then they need to put a value on it. And that value, it is a waste of time to be wrapped up in OCD. But on the other hand, it becomes a great opportunity. There are lots of people who have OCD. And as Paul said, that we as individuals get to comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. So there will be opportunity for those who have come to learn how to deal with their problem in a biblical way to help other people who still struggle with it. All right. Well, the last of the three spots I was going to talk about was depression, and I think I have enough time to get this done. Uh, keep in mind is that 90% of people who are labeled with depression do not have a disease. They are sad over loss. You can buy my book. I always tell people, if you only have enough money to buy one book this trip, buy mine. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. It's good mood, bad mood. And, and in it, I talk at length about depression, about the, um, the fact that normal sadness over loss has been turned into uh, depressive disorder in the United States, that 90% of people who are labeled with depression today really don't have a disease. They are sad because they lost something. And if you ask them what it is, they'll tell you, and, and you'll be able to gauge the, uh, the, the, how much they are, you know, the depth of their sadness based on on what they've lost. Um, the answer of scripture to sadness over loss is absolutely sufficient and always superior. The other 10% people who have disordered sadness, the folks that uh, prior to when I went to medical school um, a long time ago, um, the, uh, we would not call people depressed uh, if they could tell us why they were sad. Uh, we would call them depressed only if they couldn't. Major depression was limited to those who simply couldn't tell you why. And there are people like that, maybe 5 to 10% of them. Temper, you know, the other 10%, 5% of them probably have medical disorders that result in that depression. The other 5% probably simply do have a sad mood. And the Bible offers superior and, and superior and sufficient answers to the individual who struggles with a chronically sad mood so that they can live in a way that will improve their situation and glorify God as opposed to the way that they have dealt with it. Most of the folks that I meet who uh, fall into the uh, disordered sadness, 5 to 10%, have spent a lifetime dealing with it in a way that causes them more trouble than, 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 than they had. And, and the Bible offers a better answer to that. Always remember that Scripture tells us how to deal with medical illness from a 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and Romans 8, 28 and 29 viewpoint. You know, the primary... Biblical counseling isn't problem-oriented. It's goal-oriented. And our goal is I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Counselees who will say that can grow and change. Counselees who won't say it never will because they have some idol of the heart that they're hanging on to that they would rather have than glorifying God with their life. And also, it's important to remember that whatever situation God puts us in, He intends for our good, His glory, and our growth. That's the whole of Romans 8, 28 and 29. I guess the last thing I tell you is a, another thing that Doc Smith always used to say that when we were when we were in the middle of a struggle, and that is that if you if you're going to be sick, you might as well get something out of it, and that what you really want to be is God's best patient. You really don't want to be that patient that when the nurse and the doctor see your name on the appointment list, they groan in unison. 
You want to be the kind of patient they look f- that, that they look forward to seeing, despite whatever your problems are. We are now out of time. Thank you. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.